Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 35. Wildfires, prolonged drought, and high retail consumer demand are all fueling an unprecedented seed market in 2021. In this episode, we're joined by Crystal Rose Fricker, president of Pure Seed. Our discussion gives an on-the-ground perspective of the challenges farmers in the Pacific Northwest are facing to produce the quality grass seed that they're known for. Our discussion also covers the seed variety development process. While some of the best performing varieties never make it to market, the Turfgrass Water Conservation Alliance, and we question why some folks are willing to build a house without a foundation. Crystal has been involved in the seed industry her entire life. Her passion and knowledge shine through this wide-ranging interview. For that reason, we're excited to have Crystal on the show. My name is Dr. Jeff Atkinson, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Raymond Snyder and Dr. Paul Giordano. Raymond, Paul, and I serve as directors of agronomy for Heralds. We hope that today's episode will provide a perspective into the dynamic seed market and an appreciation for the hard work that's involved in developing quality varieties. Enjoy the show. Crystal, thanks for joining us today. We greatly appreciate you taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy this time of year, especially with the how nuts the seed market has been this year. And we'll get into some of the details of, of kind of the underlying factors of why things are so crazy. But before we do that, would you mind just giving us an insight into who Pure Seed is, your history, and, and maybe some of the business units that you service around the country? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, it is an exciting year. I'll, uh, that's my latest phrase for this year. <laughs> it's exciting. Uh, there's a lot going on and a lot to adapt to. Uh, but Pure Seed uh, goes all the way back in our roots to the original Turf Seed, which was started by my father, Bill Rose, in the 70s, early 70s. And our family has always been in this grass seed business since then. We're fully integrated in that we have a research company called Pure Seed Testing, where we do breeding of over 20 species of grasses and a few other species of clovers and teff and some forage products. And we've done that now for over 30 years in North Carolina and out here in Oregon. So we have a convergent divergent breeding program, which works quite successfully to breed varieties that are widely adapted. And then we license those varieties to companies, including pure seed and those varieties are then produced and marketed around the world. So <clears throat> we also at pure seed, however, in our more recent history, started our service part of our business, which is coating and packaging of seed, which is mostly for the retail market, but also now being used uh, a little bit more in the professional market and working with different formulations for coating uh, to help seed establishment and some of the other things that coating can add to that. So we have uh, a large team of experienced People. We have sales folks that work with all our distributors. We're a wholesale seed company, and we are 50% international, so we're all around the world, Europe, South America, Central America, Asia, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a few other places. Oh, the Middle East. We're, we do quite a bit with our warm season varieties in the Middle East, and we do work with cool season, warm season species, both turf and forage. Now, how much of your business is on the turf side of the business versus how much of it is on the forage side of the business? 
I know you guys have a, a very good president in the golf market and, and other, you know, turf related markets, but just kind of give us a size of scale or a perception of scale where you guys also equally is present in the forage market. We've been growing in the forage market. Uh, we don't have as large a portfolio as some of the European forage companies, but we do have some really widely adapted varieties. So, we have good seed yield in our forage, which also makes it more um, accessible or sustainable. It's kind of difficult sometimes with forages because they're more of a leafy plant, and so you don't get as good a seed yield, so it's hard to get them produced. But we've been quite successful with seed production, and so I think we're probably 20%, 25% forage, and then the rest is turf because there's just so many different markets. We're in you know, the bent grass market the Bermuda, the Seashore Pass Palum, Coarse Ryegrass, Tall Fescue, Bluegrass, Fine Fescue, and all those markets with turf. Wow, it sounds like a pretty good diversity of, uh, of balls keeping the ear. Russell, this is Raymond. It seems like one of the differentiators of your organization is your focus on, on research. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through your, your breeding program and in terms of you know how long it takes a selection to go from production to the market and some of the, the various uh, factors associated with the uh, seed research. We started the research company also in the 70s. I think that was 1974. I was a little teenager and just this was my summer job working out here. And then we hired Dr. Melody Frazier in the 80s and uh, she's been the director of our research program in North Carolina, so Pure Seed Testing East. And we've worked um, alongside each other since then and have a few other breeders in the program right now. Um, my son, Austin Fricker, is third generation in the family, and he's a, a, a breeder and works in multiple species, not just grasses, but has been a huge addition to our program. But what we try to focus on in our breeding is solution-based varieties. And so that means finding a problem and then breeding for resistance or plants that survive that problem. And it usually takes a good 10 years to, to get start from the beginning with collections or new germplasm, working on a trait so you get it to the point where you have statistical differences that it's improved over the other varieties and then get it produced and into the market. It can be somewhere between 10 to 13 years. Once we release it, about three years to get the production up because you have the different generations that you go from breeder seed to foundation seed to the final certified seed, which is what all the growers grow. Well, I was going to say, I noticed it looks like you have uh, testing or breeding in Oregon and maybe other parts of the country. And, and how does that uh, provide a benefit to identifying the best varieties? Yeah, that's a huge part. Um, we started in Oregon, and in Oregon, it's ideal to look at seed production and seed yield. And being a farmer's daughter, that's what, what Bill Rose started with, was grass seed farming. He actually grew the first Kentucky bluegrass here in Oregon. But being a farmer's daughter, I know how important it is to get something that is producible and that the farmer can afford to grow. So we look at that with everything we do out here. But you also need to have traits in a turf situation, a mowed situation, or in forages, you know, in a pasture situation. So you have to have a lot of trialing under those conditions. And turf, 
varies widely with different geographic regions. There are different disease pressures, for example, um, in the southeast than there would be in the southwestern part of the U.S. or the northeast. Um, and we look at cold tolerance. There's drought tolerance and water use issues, salt we look at um, using affluent waters or poor quality waters, so we do a lot of salt screening. Uh, most of that we're doing in the greenhouse, but because of our different trialing locations and cooperators, which are mostly university folks in the U.S., we also have quite a few trials around the world with some of our customers. They like to see the product before they commit to buying uh, large quantities of seed. We are constantly sending samples um, which people put out in trials. I was just on the phone this morning. We're planting trials here, and we had seed that we shipped to Ireland, and it got stuck in customs. They finally got it free their morning time, and they just finished planting their trials right when I was planting my trials. So we were on the phone together saying, yay, we finally got you know the seed into Ireland and got it planted. But those kinds of things are also tied very closely with relationships. Because uh, you could send seed to someone and then forget about it and never find out how it did, never know anything. You need to really be on the phone or traveling, visiting these sites, and communicating with what is working and what isn't working. And in the United States, we're very blessed in that we have a lot of cooperative turf trialing programs. You know, we have the National Turf Evaluation Program, NTAP. We have the Cooperative Turf Grass Breeders Trials, which is CTBT. We have um, the A-List, and we have the Turfgrass Water Conservation Alliance. And all those organizations do a very good job of testing and evaluating turfgrass germplasm across the U.S., so much so that our international customers, you know, are watching, and they are waiting for that data as well and use that data in their markets. I noticed it looked like you also had a, a seat, some exposure in terms of seashore pass phalum. Uh, can you describe a, a little bit about where the direction of the, your organization and where it's going with the seashore pasphalum breeding efforts? Sure, yeah, that's one of the exciting programs that we've been working on. I guess that does go back to the late 90s, but um, we developed the first seeded seashore pasphalum. I was actually at a conference in Australia and Dr. Ronnie Duncan was speaking about this new species of grass that could take salt water, ocean water levels. And I asked him if he would mind sending me some germplasm out to Oregon just on the off chance that maybe we could figure out how to get it to make seed. And so now fast forward, what are we, 30 plus years later, We've developed several varieties that are successful. It's difficult to produce seed, but we've figured out how to do it. And we market those varieties in a blend called Pure Dynasty. We found that marketing a blend is more successful for disease resistance and just overall performance. And that seed is, is very valuable because heretofore there was a lot of vegetative production, and there still is vegetative varieties of paspalum. But it's hard to ship that internationally um, because of all the testing and difficulties with shipping vegetative material. So seed is easier um, for international sales. And so most of the past palm sales actually are international. We are growing in the U.S. as it's getting tried and used and becoming more successful. 
And we have some new varieties coming that are pretty exciting um, with perspective to being able to use some herbicides to control some of the grassy weeds and transition them from Bermuda to Paspalum, for example. So that's been very successful and is growing. Um, we have Pure Dynasty on quite a few high-profile uh, courses, soccer fields, um, and sports stadiums. So it's it's doing quite well and taking off and feeling very blessed about that because this year was such a tough year out here in Oregon for seed pr production for most all our crops. And I, I know we'll get to that in our discussion. The one crop that is surviving and liking this high temperatures and drought, I mean, we use irrigation, but is seashore past pound. It originates from Africa and it loves the high temperatures. So it is doing well. So that's our one bright spot this year in, in production. When one applies uh, seashore past palm via seed, what percent germination should one expect? The minimum is 60, and we set the, that back with the first variety sea spray. These newer varieties have um, higher germination rates. There, there's no, I think, anywhere from 70 to 90, and they do fine. The thing about seashore past palum is it has some dormancy, and so it takes a little longer to germinate. It's not going to come up as fast as Bermuda, unless you're someplace where it's super high temperatures. That does trigger faster germination. If it's like 100 degrees, it pops a little faster. But the key is keeping it wet enough because when it dries down, it sort of shuts down again. So keeping um, good moisture on a new seeding is, is one of the key factors for good growing. But once it does germinate, it takes off unbelievably fast in its tillering and spreading abilities. So it grows in um, really quickly. Thank you. Chris, I have a question. I have kind of a two-part question here. In the breeding process, is there a holy grail for a new variety, whether it's disease tolerance, drought tolerance, et cetera? And along the same lines, is it, do you have any stories of a uh, variety that your team developed, but maybe you didn't produce enough seed or for whatever reason it couldn't make it to commercialization? Well, there's lots of stories that way. Um, but, yeah, I think the key to a good variety is a trait, you know, that it's rating well statistically for a certain trait. Lately, the drought tolerance has been a pretty key one for us. We are able to get a little bit better pricing for uh, turfgrass water colophate varieties because that's verified by a third party, and we've shown that they survive better with less water. They stay green longer with less water, so it provides a solution that way. And those varieties also um, have a better chance in a, in a season like we've had this year where we're having drought and heat during seed production. But besides a trait, you have to have good seed yield. And that is what has probably been the most failure, uh, caused the most failure for certain varieties. You can have the top variety in NTEP, and it can have a super good trait. Maybe it's really gray leaf spot resistant or even drought tolerant. But if it doesn't produce produce enough seed, it just, it won't go. You can't get anybody to plant it. And so you could try to pay a super high price. We've had bluegrasses. North Star, North Star bluegrass is one that is absolutely beautiful bluegrass. You can mow it tight, uh, almost to green tight, super dense. 
but we couldn't get enough seed production of it, so it's died. There's been a few other things. Uh, there was a rhizominous Tulfescu that we developed. We finally got one that had a lot of rhizomes, but it blew up for stem rust, which affects seed yield and is not great in turf, and then it blew up for brown mm -hmm. patch. So we, even though it had decent seed yield, we decided not to release it because we felt like rhizomes alone wasn't enough, that you needed to have overall good disease resistance to go forward with it. So we didn't even release it. So I guess just one final question on breeding. Is there, do you have a good idea of how many, how many different varieties you need to screen in order to find one to go to commercialization? What's that ratio look like? Is it, is it 10 to one? Is it a thousand to one? Well, it's a little different in each species. Bluegrass, we have, we go through a lot <clears throat> higher numbers. So the, the bluegrass trial that we just planted this morning is about a thousand plots. Um, one part of that was the Bluegrass CTBT trial, which is a, a group of breeders putting things together, and we did a shade and a low-mo trial. But the bulk of our trial, so 500, 400 plots or so, were all, we call them progenies, but they basically go back to one hybrid plant that we selected and harvested, and we put it in a turf plot and watch it and if it's good enough in turf and the grams per plant was pretty good, then we got to look, is it apomectic? And so we have to do a grow out to see if it's apomectic. And out of all those, the amounts that are apomectic, each year we might get anywhere from one to, I think our best year we got eight. So wow. that's one year and we do this every year and we've had up, to, yeah, same, pretty similar numbers. We, we go through about anywhere from 500 to up to 1,000 hybrids a year. So that's, what is that, 1%? Wow. 1 to 3%? Yeah, that's a, that's a low percentage, whatever it is. Yeah, that's lowest. Okay. Then the other species, they're open pollinated populations. So you're shifting a population to whatever it is you're selecting for. So if it's gray leaf spot and ryegrass or tall fescue, we're screening the material in North Carolina, and we have them also at Rutgers. And we have all the, I'll call them progenies, but the better way to think of them is they're kind of the parents of the population. And we have those in individual turf plots. So that takes usually about three years of sending them over to those locations and then growing under the disease pressure and then figure out which ones are the most tolerant. And then starting seed out of each of those to grow a population that we would rogue for seed yield and some of the other diseases that we look under seed production to eventually get to breeder seed and the final variety. So it's that process is a long process and we would do that and we would have breeder seed. For example, right now we have 40 tall fescues in the cooler that we've developed over the last three to five years. And out of those 40, we might go with three or four, and that would be Pure Seedwood license a variety. Someone else, another company might license a variety. Um, but once someone licenses a variety, that doesn't mean success right off the bat either. When someone licenses a variety, then they plant a seed stock field and see how that yields. And you have to make sure your seed stock is clean because if it, if it doesn't, isn't handled just right, 
then your seed stock for all your future production is in jeopardy of having weed problems or not being genetically pure. And so that could kill the variety right there if the grower doesn't do a good job on the seed stock. So you have to get that all lined up and correct and then get those acres placed. And then certification is important because that go, they go out and inspect the fields to make sure that they're described, they look at them, and look at the breeder's description to make sure that that certified variety will be what the breeder intended it to be. And if there's any problems in the field, I get a call and I've got to go out to the field and look. And we, we say, oh, no, this just doesn't cut it. It has to become uncertified and we have to start over to create the certified variety. So within tall fescue and ryegrass and fine fescues, I'd say probably 10% of, of the varieties we develop go forward in the market. And then of those, half of those, so 5%, end up being good varieties that have longevity that last in the market. But once you do get a good variety that the market likes and the grower likes, I've seen varieties last 30 years, 30 plus. We still have uh, some tall fescues in Europe that go back to the early 80s. I guess that's uh, longer like than 30 years. Else, the more you, <laughs> yeah, the more you get to dig into it, it's just amazing how much there is that goes into every little piece of our industry, you know, and grass seed being just a part of that. Yeah, that's what's fun about it to me. That's what's exciting. There's so many different levels of um, – cooperation, collaboration, relationships that are tied to these plants. These plants are so important for so many people, and that's why we want to do a really good job with them and bring products that make a difference that help the golf course superintendent or the sports turf manager or the seed distributor, you know, give them a solution, give them something that will work that hopefully we can all make money on from the end user all the way down to the grower. Yeah. Hey, great point, Crystal. And this is Paul here. I, speaking of that and kind of staying on that topic, you, you think about the pressures that our industry is under and, um, you know, the constant battle to conserve resources. You touched earlier on the Turfgrass Water Conservation Alliance. And I'm, I'm curious, maybe if you could elaborate to folks who maybe uh, don't know what that is, maybe elaborate on, on what TWACA is, as, as we call it, and how that's added value to these varieties in, in our marketplace. Um, we've been involved with that quite a while, goes way back, um, but it's all started when we were breeding for drought tolerance, and we're struggling to find a way to get that evaluated. Uh, NTEP really didn't look at drought very much uh, in the beginning, and out here on the West Coast with my turf plots, you know, we're dry from July through sometimes October. So I can easily see if I don't provide supplemental irrigation, I could see, wow, there's some differences. There's some, some good germplasm here that we could maybe make a difference. So we started working on it, and then NextGen started working on it, uh, Kenny Hignite. And we started talking that we need a way to evaluate this germplasm and wanted to include the university folks. And so set up basically a network of university people to um, work on looking at how can we evaluate for drought tolerance objectively. Because a lot of turf evaluation is very subjective. You go out and you rate on a scale of one to nine, and I could go rate something a seven today, 
and one of you guys might go out there and say, what, that's gorgeous, that's a nine, and someone else would look at it and say, oh, I don't like that, that's about a five. So we started working with this digital image analysis, which is basically using a light box, so each plot has the same light, and using a camera to take a picture of the plot, and then using the red, green, and blue pixels in a program that analyzes that to tell us what percent green cover is there really in that plot. And there's a lot more sophisticated programs that are getting really good at this. They can even look at percent weed content and a few other things. But we primarily like to use it for drought because it's so easy. It's either the tissue is green or it's brown or tan colored. And so you can get an objective rating on what percent green tissue there is in a plot. And so I don't even have to go out there, which I spend a lot of time rating by hand because that's how I memorize the varieties and how they're doing. I get the feel for every rep, what things are rating. But if I can send somebody out there to capture it every three days and when it's in a drought situation, and then I can look at the computer readout and I can track, wow, this variety is 10% greener than all the other varieties, and it's been six weeks with no water, I can really start to quantify the differences between these varieties. And so when we work with the Turfgrass Water Conservation Group, we are working with 12, I don't know, 12 to 15 sites across the U.S. and different soil types. Everybody's using this objective way to capture the data. The data is analyzed by um, Dr. Karcher. So I don't know, no private company is touching the data. We don't even know what the final results are. It's all third-party objective And there's a university staff, a research committee that evaluates the data, and they're the ones that say what meets the mark, what makes TWACA qualified. And we just wait and hope our varieties do well and get the results, and then what's qualified goes into production, and that has taken off in our program extremely well. There are good varieties. They have other traits besides drought. The growers like them. And now our, our customers that are in areas that have less water have a viable solution and they can go to their water districts and municipalities and they could say, hey, this will use less water. This is a turf grass solution that will work. Instead of banning turf, let's use something that makes a difference. Absolutely. <clears throat> well, appreciate your insights there. I think it's, it's certainly a valuable tool and a resource for the industry in terms of these objective type ratings that really get us to a, uh, a point in where we can, uh, again, make more educated decisions on how to conserve resources. Out of curiosity, based on the work that's gone on, about how many species are covered under this TWACA program? Tulsa skew, bluegrass, perennial ryegrass, and Bermuda. I think that's it. Yeah, fine fescue also. So, is so it, bluegrass, red grass, So five species. Is there is there a is there a general rule of thumb qualification to say to be Chwaka certified you need to reduce water usage twenty percent versus some reference species or some reference variety or how how does a variety classify or qualify to become Chwaka certified? Yeah, yeah, they are actually working on something called plant factors, which will totally tie back to that. But heretofore, what we've been doing is we have the past TWACA qualified varieties and their standards. And so in every trial, we put the, the top standard and the bottom. We always put in a susceptible. 
And then we run mm-hmm. the trials until they're down to the top varieties in the trials only have 25% green cover, which is extreme. Uh, most cases, I think you would, you would take it down to about 50% and then you say, okay, I've, I've, I, I need to give it a little water. But we go clear down to 25%. And then we look at recovery and, and speed of recovery from taking it down that low. And so the top varieties have to be in statistical groupings compared to the top standards from previous TWACA years to make the qualification. And I think they have to be in that top grouping on multiple multiple sites. I don't exactly know how many sites they have to be in the top because there are some different soil situations. Sometimes we see a variety, you know, might not be up in the top in this location, but it was top in all the others. And so the research committee evaluates that. And um, in my own trials, you know, we'll run statistics and look at, you know, the LSDs and find what's in the top statistical group for percent green cover. And it's usually a pretty narrow group. There's not a lot that can do it. It's, it's a, and it's getting, as we've been doing more and more breeding work and more breeders are working on it, that bar kind of keeps raising. So the varieties that we have that are currently talk qualified, um, we like to say they can save at least 30% water, but I've seen I've seen them do even better than that when you look at ET rates and you, you know, reduce your watering based on, on ET rates, you can save quite a bit of water. I think it's probably too much to say saving 50%. That's pretty extreme, but um, we do see significant reductions in water bills if you use these varieties. Yeah, even 30%, that's a significant, significant savings. Absolutely. Hey, so Crystal, where could an end user um, get this information of the Twalker qualified varieties? Is there a, a site that they could go to to kind of look at a listing of these different species as well as varieties? Yeah, the, the Turfgrass Water Conservation Alliance website, <clears throat> you just put in TWCA, you should be able to find it. And there's newsletters that go out and they have a Twitter, they're on social media and posting different things there. And then Pure Seed has all the information on our varieties and we can provide data and additional supplemental things if you want more information as well. So let's talk a little bit about, I guess, the, the seed market elephant in the room. And that's the you know, market price for seed this year, not just Pure Seed, but just across the board um, has seen a significant increase along with everything else. I mean, heck, the price of urea by itself is going up 75, 80% year over year. So what are some of the things that, from your perspective, that are driving this boom in the, in the pricing market um, for seed? Well, we've never seen a year like this. Um, Oregon usually has plenty of rainfall in the spring, and it was our driest, I don't know, I forget now if it's 40 years or 50 years or something like that and then on top of that we had 115 degree weather not just one day but multiple days right during pollination and so the drought in the spring reduced the amount of seed heads and there are some fields that the grower just never even harvested there's one right near the research farm that's still standing there with nobody even trying to harvest it because there was nothing there um, and it's not just Oregon, it's affecting um, Canada. The numbers out of Canada look like 50% crop, so that affects ryegrass. Um, the problem with 
this West Coast also is, it's not just ryegrass, it's turning tall fescue, fine fescue, and now the, the bluegrass is in severe jeopardy because of dry land production where they don't have any supplemental irrigation. They rely totally on rainfall. And so those crops are, I believe that's also like 50% is all they got. And all the spring planting, wow. which normally these spring plant and the rains bring up the crop for next year. It's like a 18 month planting. You got to plant in the spring and then you harvest the following fall. All the spring planted mm-hmm. um, died because there wasn't any rain. So whole fields gone and reduced yields. And then there's water restrictions in some of the production areas like Madras and Lagrand if you don't have river water. So growers are having to choose which crops they can water. And so they're going for the higher priced crops to give their water to and grasses on the low end of the totem pole because grass seed prices have been the same. Um, perennial ryegrass has been about the same for what, 30 years now, 20 years, 90 cents, 80 cents you know, below a buck. And you know, all the prices to the growers have not been the same. Fertilizer you just mentioned is skyrocketing equipment. You can't even get, if if your combine breaks down, you can't get a part. So you have to figure out how to jerry-rig it or or to get the rest of your crop in. It's it's pretty steel apart from someone else or another piece of equipment to try and get it done. Um, But so it was, all environmental, but now everything else is piling on and the pricing. And so the growers just, in terms of production, the mice and the insects are eating up the fields. We've never seen that before where an entire field is not worth harvesting because of that damage. We used to be able to burn our fields, you know, and um, sanitize it that way and get rid of some of the rodents and insects, but they don't allow burning anymore. And so all our disease pressures, insects, rodents, everything's just multiplying. And so the growers are trying to figure out other things they can rotate to try and break up some of those life cycles. But there's not a lot that you can rotate with grass. And then what's happened in Oregon is hazelnuts uh, grow very well here. The prices have been good. So literally eight to 10,000 acres have been going out of grass seed into hazelnuts or other crops each year. So our grass seed acres have been shrinking and we we have prided ourselves in being the cleanest, best place to produce grass seed. But as our acres are shrinking, the growers are shrinking and some growers are not going next generation to just do grass seed because they can't make it. So they're diversifying and they're doing nursery crop, they're doing hazelnuts. So to be a successful farmer anymore, you can't make it on grass seed. You don't make enough money. So you have to find other crops, which is just causing less acres. And so those growers have more power because we are not flooding the market like used to happen. You know, about every five years we'd be short and then everybody would plant. And five years later, we have way too much seed. So that up and down has decreased and flattened out a little bit more, which is kind of good because we were having such low prices and then, you know, such fluctuation in the prices. So we've been heading towards more stable pricing, but then on top of growers not planting ryegrass last year because they didn't like the price, it was too low for them. So a lot of them planted just tall fescue or something else has put our ryegrass into the biggest deficit that we've ever seen. So reduced yields, less acres, 
and I don't know if the demand is up or just, well, yeah, the demand went up because of all the retail sales because of COVID. So demand went up for the use of grass seed and the production went down and then we have a crop failure. So it's the perfect storm, if you will. Would you say that, and it's probably a naive question without knowing all the you know nuances of the market. But is there a price target that the growers say, well, the fry grass or pick pick whatever seed variety you want to pick, seed species gets to three bucks a pound, then we're going to quit planting hazelnuts and we're going to plant grass seed again, or is that just uh, is just the diversity mindset of having multiple crops? Is that just so ingrained in farmers now that that's just a trend that we're going to have to deal with, regardless of you know price per pound of seed? Well, it's tricky because we have differences in seed yield on these varieties, um, but a lot of growers feel like, I mean, they realize that, but they also feel like if they got a top yield, that was, wow, they did a great job, which is true. You have to water timely, fertilize timely. You know, there's a lot of different things that go into a high seed yield. Um, But when you don't get a good seed yield, that's when they get disgruntled. And so there's across the board. I mean, we're seeing as low as 600 pounds per acre on a ryegrass field, which a normal ryegrass, the mean would be hopefully 1,500. A really good grower would get a ton. And so wow. there's there, some of them are, are like won't even. I, th- this, this price where ryegrass is now, has encouraged some growers to plant. That's why last year they didn't plant. It wasn't worth it to them. Telfescu was still worth it. Um, so the pricing is weird this year because it's you have the Augsburg pricing, which is the Oregon Grower Bargaining Association. But then on top of that, because of the shortages and where the market was and just companies wanting to get their seed and make sure they got it clean because there's a, a backlog in when you can get when they put the bring the seed in from the field and they put it in the warehouse, if your variety gets shoved to the back, it won't get clean till spring. And if you need it right away, you've got to be getting to the cleaner and the grower and saying, I need it. So some companies went higher price above the Augsburg pricing to help ensure that they would even get their seed clean timely. And as it's getting cleaned, we're finding out how bad it really is. And in some cases, it's worse wow. than we thought. So the growers are also finding out how bad it is. And so they're getting, you know, it's just, I mean, we have literally some growers that are going bankrupt. They're, they're done because if you have everything leveraged with the bank and you lose your crop and you're not diversified, you're done. So right. it's that, it's, it's that dire, um, and normally a grower would be okay because his tall fescue would do good, his ryegrass might do bad. But when all grasses are doing bad and you're a grassy grower, it's pretty devastating. Understandable. Understandable. So it's tough to really say, you know, one thing we want to talk about is, hey, what does the future forecast for seed prices look like? But it sounds like it's really tough to say because there are just so many atypical, unique factors occurring, uh, kind of a uh, imperfect imper- uh, storm, but uh, in some ways – of in the market right now yeah i didn't answer that question very good it it so it goes back to a grower needs to make so much per acre and i don't know i think it's 2000 or something but that's all dependent on his cost and the price of the seed he's grown and then what kind of yield he gets so 
you need that 1500 so see how that varies if it yields a thousand and it's 90 cents a pound versus it yields 2000 and it's a dollar 25 a pound there's a huge range in what the goer makes or doesn't make so that's why the bargaining association meetings literally take nine eight nine hours a day and multiple days and it's the hard one of the hardest things i only made it through i think my phone died after four hours i i didn't stick around for the whole thing but i have i have people that do that for me and they stuck around but it's hard you have the grower side and the dealer side and there's a lot of different um places the seed goes so everybody has different views of what the price should be and then we have all these people that this affects all the layers uh from whole you know grower to wholesale to distributor to sod farmer to sports you know end user all those layers that are affected by this and we realize that and growers do realize that they're like you guys we have to be careful we can't be greedy we just need to survive but we also need to make a living and so somehow we have to figure out what is the real value of this seed because really in a turf situation if you start out with bad seed you're doomed from the get-go if you have good seed Mm -hmm. that is the foundation for the entire sports facility golf course uh, landscape if you start with good seed you are going to have success we used to have a, a phrase your success depends on seed. And I don't know how we got to this point of seed being the bottom rung in in a portfolio of products because seed is the most important piece. And we know that in vegetables and flowers and other crops. Why do we not know that in grass seed? I guess there's a perception that, you know, grass, seed, grass is green and so all, you know, seed is, is equal. But it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. It's like, well, we're willing to pay... 300 bucks an acre, 350 bucks an acre on a fungicide spray, but we're not willing to pay for a solid foundation in the form of a grass seed. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need more education and that's why I was happy to do this podcast because there is so much that goes into uh, research of grasses, but more than that, testing, trialing as we've covered today, production and then working with you know the end user to understand how to how to manage the turf grass properly don't overwater it this is a variety that you can save on water or this is a variety that has good resistance to gray leaf spot so you can save money on your fungicides you know so you can work together to have a program that if they spend a little more on their seed they'll have the best turf ever and they can use what they need to use wisely, but they don't need to overuse any kind of herbicide, fungicide, whatever, to be to have a better integrative program. Well, I guess the last thing I'll ask you about today, and I appreciate all the info. This we could this could go on for a couple hours, just the interest that we have in these different topics. But you know, seed coating is something, and traditionally, because we've thought of seeds as a commodity market in some ways like grass is green just as i said a minute ago the seed coating hasn't been that large of a focus but with seed availabilities dropping is seed coating something that might play a bigger role moving forward yeah we're definitely seeing that already and 
we've done a lot of research in coated seed and you know there's a lot of people on either side of the fence when it comes to coating or not coating but the way that we like to look at it is it gives you it's like an insurance program especially so it's taken off in the retail market because homeowners don't really know what they're doing and if you give them coated seed they can see better where it's distributed, so it helps the ballistics and, and getting the seed spread evenly. But a water-absorbent polymer on a seed will help that seed germinate when the homeowner forgets to water. So you can say that you could get by with a little bit less water. It's not that you don't water, but it gives you more insurance to have a better establishment, which is key in turf grass when you use seed. You need to have good establishment also, good seed good establishment sets you up for success. So you can put fertilizer, you can put um, some fungicides for Pythium, you know, there's all kinds of different things you can put in the coating to aid that process. And for some people, they like that convenience. Um, they like having it all with the seed and get that good start. And then later we'll look at what we need to apply. And so it has benefits. And yes, there is some more inert matter that binds those things to the seed, but it's still, what I've seen is sometimes we use too high a seeding rate with raw seed, and if you use coated seed and you get good establishment, the population maybe isn't as dense, but that sets the plant up to be healthier to fight disease because it's not too dense. I've actually seen less disease in the same variety coated versus raw because the seed density is a little bit less, so that's that can be a good thing mm -hmm. as long as it establishes well. Uh, and so it can help in a lot of ways. I, I've rarely seen it hurt anything. So that's, I guess that's my comments on seed coning. Well, I mean, we've covered a lot of, a lot of information and certainly could have gone, gone deeper in each one of those topics, but uh, certainly appreciate your time and appreciate your insight into the, into the seed market. I certainly learned a lot here and I think our, our listeners will as well. If, if folks are looking for more information or looking for a way to get in touch or have questions about seed, is what's the best route to get in touch with someone at Pure Seed? I would say um, get on our social media or our website. We have people um, checking that all the time. And it also has all our salespeople with their contact information. So if you're in a certain region, we have salespeople in those regions that can help you. And then if it's a research breeding variety question um, and I need to get involved, I usually do. I, I talk directly to superintendents and turfgrass managers all the time. So I'm happy to also help. And also Dr. Melody Fraser in North Carolina, we do uh, tours there. If anybody wants to go and see our grasses in the southeast under those heavy disease pressures, we're happy to have visitors. And we have our field day uh, also every summer. And then we also have our episodes um, on by topic uh, on YouTube that you can look up if you want to learn more about drought or disease or traffic or bent grass or warm season grasses. We have about 10 different episodes that go into depth on all those topics. Great. We have a uh, show notes document that we, that we produce with each podcast episode, so I'll be sure to include all that contact information and a link to your guys' uh, YouTube page as well. So with that, appreciate awesome. your time and uh, appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thank guys. You, it's been a blast. That wraps up our interview with Crystal Rose Fricker. 
A sincere thank you to Crystal for her time during this extremely busy time in the seed industry. This show would not be possible without the willingness and cooperation of folks across the country willing to share their stories with us. Turf Dudes exist to communicate important research findings and turf management trends to turfgrass managers as part of Harold's effort to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, we want your feedback. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes@heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. While you're at it, please subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time.